You probably know about the Trail of Tears, the forced removal of indigenous people from their homelands in the southeast to land west of the Mississippi River, to land the U.S. government designated as, quote, Indian country. The government coerced about 100,000 indigenous people across several tribes to trade their fertile, desirable land for land in modern-day Oklahoma. The removal of the Cherokee from their land in what's now Tennessee, Alabama, Georgia, and North Carolina was especially cruel. In 1838, the U.S. military forced Cherokee people from their homes at Bayonet Point and held them in concentration camps with poor shelter, scant food, and no source of clean water. Diseases like dysentery spread. Among the 16,000 Cherokees held at these camps, about 2,000 died before journeying west. The rest were herded a thousand miles west by the U.S. military, like cattle. The march was brutal, and the marchers were not equipped with adequate supplies. The Cherokee lost a quarter of their population to the Trail of Tears. You've probably heard of that story, but you probably haven't heard about the story of the Cherokee people who refused to leave. We are the descendants of those Cherokees who resisted removal. And when uh, Andrew Jackson signed the Indian Removal Act, my ancestors, the ancestors of, of everyone who's a member of the Eastern Band, were the ones who said, we're not leaving, we're staying here. I'm Mia Sullivan, and you're listening to Places, a podcast documenting stories from offbeat American locations from a girl living in a van. This is a story about the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians, descendants of the Cherokee people who've lived in what's now the southeastern United States for thousands of years. We're going to learn how European contact appended Cherokee society and take a look at what the Cherokees lost and strong pieces of culture that still remain. Okay, let's get into it. The Koala Boundary is a 100-square-mile oval carved out of the western pocket of North Carolina. It's about 50 miles west of Asheville, 40 miles south of Gatlinburg, and borders Great Smoky Mountains National Park. The town of Cherokee is on the northwestern edge of the Koala Boundary. A river flows through town. Green rhododendron bushes and moss-covered trees shoot out from the riverbanks. 
Tourist shops line the east side of Sali Boulevard, one of the main roads through town. The shops sell dream catchers, moccasins, and toy bows and arrows. Across the street, on the west side of Sali Boulevard, there's the Museum of the Cherokee Indian, an authentic crafts co-op, and the Tribal Council House. I had the privilege of talking to people at these three places to learn about the history and culture of the Eastern Band and how the tribe works today. Basically, all I said was, um, hello everyone, my name is Tyra Maney. I'm 24 years old and I work at the Museum of the Cherokee Indian. So for Cherokee people, we have like a lot of origins of how things came to be and uh, different things like that, but we like we've always heard even through like our elders and like previous generations like we've just said we've lived here forever a lot of like our ceremonies and like our belief system a lot of it had to do with like fire so like when we would do our traditional like dances or like any sort of festival like we always had a fire that was built the way like we passed down like a lot of our, like, our history and like our culture is through like oral traditions specifically through storytelling. There's like something to be like learned or there's like a moral that you like take from the story. Probably like the height of like Cherokee like culture would be like our Mississippian period. That dates back to about a thousand years to 500 years ago. It was right before we had contact with any European group. So during the Mississippian period, we'd already been living here for like thousands of years. And during that time period, we were known as like the mound builders. We would actually like literally like build mounds. And like on top of that would be like our townhouse or like our council house. And that's where like a lot of ceremonies or like a lot of different events would happen. It was like a very democratic kind of government system. And so anytime that there was a big change or like a big decision that had to be decided like within the community, like it was community based and like everyone had a voice. And so we would meet at like the townhouses or like the council houses and we would debate it until like, we came to like an agreement. Women had a voice, men had a voice, and like even like the children, we honored like their opinions and their ideas about things. And so everyone like had their own spot on the floor if they wanted it. So we're a matrilineal and like even like a matriarchal society. This was like pre-contact. Now the roles have like kind of flipped. We like appreciate our women just because like they were like able to give life and whenever you got married um, the man would actually marry into the women's family and the women was like the head of the household and, like the children were considered to be like her children. Marriage like for the Cherokee um, it wasn't like a legally binding concept for them like it wasn't considered like a lifelong commitment. Some marriages did last a lifetime or sometimes like they could only be like a couple years, like a few months. It was based on like what the two individuals like decided for. Things changed in a big way after the Europeans arrived. The Cherokees' first known European contact was with the Spanish conquistador Hernando de Soto and his men in 1540. By the time that 
DeSoto and his men had got here, they had already went through like South America and Peru and their main idea was to find like golds and like riches but they didn't really find anything like that here. They were so surprised by like how well civilized and like adapted like we were to life. Our next encounter was like with the British. That's actually kind of like what ended up leading to like a lot of like the colonization and culture loss that we still face today. <laughs> And so the Cherokee, like, we're like a very like communal based group of people and usually like when people like need help or like they're in need, we give them what we have and like we give them what they would need. So when the British came, uh, we were like very friendly and very generous and um, they easily saw like how easy it was to like kind of persuade us and like flip that to benefit them. The first known Cherokee British encounter happened during the 1670s and turned into a trading relationship. The Cherokee traded deerskins to the British for tools and weapons. When the British came, they had like cast iron like pots and pans and they had like plows and like hoes and things like that that we, that we saw as like beneficial for like our gardens. Whatever goods and services that we needed from the British it would be like so many deer that we'd have to kill and then they wanted like the hides or like the skin for it. And it actually like severely like depleted our food source and the deer population here. The British colonies grew rapidly during the 1700s. The colonial population was 250,000 in 1700. By 1760, it had grown by over 600% to 1.6 million. English, German, and Scottish colonists were pouring in, looking for land. White settlers, however, were afraid of the indigenous people living nearby. A Lutheran reverend who was settled in Georgia wrote the following about the threat of indigenous people in 1750. Quote, They torture prisoners to death slowly in an unspeakable way. They do not fight in the open, but concealed and from behind bushes, and therefore are very dangerous to travelers and plantations isolated in the woods, for they all act like highway robbers. In Carolina and Georgia, soldiers stationed along the borders in war and peacetime keep their eyes on these savages. The more Europeans come into the land, the less one is afraid of them. With colonists encroaching on their land, the Cherokee looked to the British crown. In an effort to avoid a costly conflict with the Cherokee and other indigenous tribes, King George III issued the Proclamation of 1763. The proclamation barred colonial expansion west of the Appalachian Mountains. The colonists largely ignored it. Not too long after, the Revolutionary War broke out. So we fought against America and we allied with the British lost <laughs> and then um the colonists victory in the revolutionary war was bad news for the cherokee now the proclamation of 1763 had no teeth and they were at the whims of the united states a land-hungry new nation everyone like kind of blames the removal of like cherokees on andrew jackson but like there was like a long history like way before andrew jackson even became president like, even under Washington, like, they implemented, like, the civilization policy. They basically wanted to, like, civilize the Indian and 
they wanted us to like adopt the ways of like the American settlers at the time. So instead of us like living off of like the land and like having like villages and stuff like that, it's like, all right, this family, um, you're gonna get this many acres and here's your livestock. Like you don't have to go hunt anymore. And then like slowly, like we started to lose pieces of like our culture and like what made us Cherokee, like, you know, like hunting and gathering and living off the land. Like a lot of those, like we were slowly starting to lose at that point. The Cherokee tried to prove to the Americans that they were civilized in hopes of being left alone. One way they did this, by adopting a syllabary. So Sequoia, like whenever he created the syllabary, we use that as a tactic, like, no, look, we're civilized. Like we, we can like read and write in our own language. Like, but having a written language didn't cut it. The Americans were hellbent on expanding west and the Cherokees stood in their way. The Indian Removal Act of 1830 gave President Andrew Jackson the authority to make an exchange, to assign tracts of land west of the Mississippi to various indigenous tribes in exchange for their fertile, desirable, and strategically useful land in the southeast, land these indigenous tribes had been living on for thousands of years. In 1834, the state of North Carolina submitted an appalling recommendation to Congress on how to deal with the Cherokee. They said that, quote, the lands in the occupancy of the Cherokees are of great extent and value. The removal of this unfortunate race beyond the Mississippi is of momentous importance to the interest of this state. The red men are not within the pales of civilization. They are not under the restraints of morality, nor the influence of religion, and they are always disagreeable and dangerous neighbors to a civilized people. It is believed this unfortunate race of beings might be induced to exchange their lands in this state for territory beyond the Mississippi, whither so many of their brethren have already gone. Cherokee feelings about how to handle their impending forced removal varied. Ultimately, like, the Cherokee broke into three parties. Um, so there was the Treaty Party, and the Treaty Party was, like, this group of Cherokee that were kind of like, we should sign the treaty and, like, we'll just go. Like, we'll go to Oklahoma. So there was another party that we called John Ross and the Cherokee Nation. And so John Ross was, like, our chief at the time. He took this case, like, all the way to, like, the Supreme Court. It actually, like, went in our favor, like, no, you can't remove them. And um, Andrew Jackson was like, well, that's what the Supreme Court decided, but I'm gonna do the opposite of that. And like, they're going anyway. John Ross took like every like legal avenue that he could to try and get us to stay. Legally, like we were supposed to stay, but Andrew Jackson was just like, no, I don't, I don't wanna listen to that. And then we had a group called the O'Connell Lefty Citizens. And they were basically like this group of Cherokee who they didn't want to leave. They didn't even want to take any legal action about it. Like, they were just like, no, like, this is like our homeland and like we're staying and like you're not removing us. So then can you tell me the story of the people who hid out and stayed? The most common romanticized stories of like how the Eastern Band was like created and how we got to stay in North Carolina was like the Cherokees like hid out and like, you know, like the soldiers couldn't find them. And then the other one was... Well, Sally gave himself up and like all the turkeys, they were free. 
Sali was a Cherokee man. He was accused of killing American soldiers who were forcibly transporting Cherokees. Sali and other Cherokees were hiding out in the mountains, resisting removal. The legend goes that once Sali was implicated for killing the soldiers, he gave himself up to the Americans in exchange for the right for his fellow Cherokees in hiding to be able to stay in North Carolina. On like one hand, they're true, but at the same time, like they're like this big, like romanticized version that's like barely even like a fraction of what actually had happened. Some of them gave up their rights to the tribe, and so basically, like we were unenrolling like in the tribe to become like North Carolina citizens. North Carolina did eventually recognize the Cherokees' legal right to reside in the state. This came about in a way you might not expect. So during the Civil War, we actually fought on the side of the South. Even though like we lost, Ultimately, what that did for us was that it basically just let us gain favor, like, within the state. And so, actually, because of that, we actually were able to create, like, the Eastern Band, and, like, we were actually able to be, like, recognized, like, within North Carolina as, like, a state after helping and siding with the Confederacy instead of, like, going to the Union. William Holland Thomas, a white lawmaker and businessman, led a legion of Cherokee troops during the Civil War. Thomas grew up in rural North Carolina, learned how to read and write in Cherokee, and was kind of adopted into the tribe. Will Thomas was, he actually ended up, like, becoming, like, a big face for Cherokee, and, like, because he was, like, a white man, and, like, he had this advantage that we didn't. And so, like, a lot of us were, like, giving him money, and, like, he was buying plots of land. That's ultimately, like, how we got, like, the Quala boundary. It's actually, like, the call of boundary because we, from where, like, we were able to, like, legally purchase it, we own the rights to the land here. The Kuala boundary is not a federal Indian reservation. The Eastern Band purchased their land back from the U.S., and the tribe owns the rights to the land. In contrast, a federal Indian reservation is land that's been reserved for a tribe by the U.S. government. The government technically owns the land and is holding it in trust on behalf of the tribe. Kuala is still referred to as a reservation, though, which I found kind of confusing. But even after, like, we gained, like, recognition and, like, created the Eastern Band, it was probably, like, one of the more detrimental times, like, for us and, like, a lot of tribes, like, across the United States. It was a detrimental time, in part, because of the boarding schools. In the late 1800s, the federal government began requiring indigenous kids to attend boarding schools where they'd learn how to be, quote, civilized. The first boarding school was opened in 1879 by Richard Henry Pratt. He very famously is quoted like for kill the Indian, save the man. He was ultimately like what started like the boarding schools that actually ended up happening like all over the United States. Indigenous kids and like different tribal children like got sent to these schools. I guess like on one hand like there were like some parents that I guess kind of gave their kids up, you know, like that could be good for them, but like they would like come in and like basically like raid houses and like basically take the kids. 
there were like accounts of like Cherokee children like fighting underneath the floorboards and like screaming and crying like when people like would come in and like get the kids. They framed it as like this thing again like your kids aren't like civilized, they need to like learn these things to become like you know a good American citizen and like know like the American ways and things like that but it was really just like a slave labor like a lot of the kids like they didn't even really go to schools like they went to like factories and work kids who like were going to these boarding schools they were like beaten or like severely like tortured like for speaking like their native language christianity and like christian values were like implemented in pretty much like any part of like our culture we were like punished for like celebrating that or like using that what was the goal of the boarding schools as you understand it it was like another form of like assimilation and colonization for us. It was like wiping us of like all of our history and culture and like our language and there is like a lot of proof of that like how many like fluent speakers like we lost like within like one generation and like how much like of our like history and culture that was lost and like never carried on like because of that. My like my grandmother, she went to like the boarding school she was like a fluent speaker and she like didn't learn english until she was like in sixth grade because of like the way she was like treated like in boarding schools like she never taught like my mom's generation so like within like one generation like there was like a language loss like within like my family pretty much since contact like it was like hit after hit after hit after hit but i think it's like cool like we're still here and like even though like there are things that we lost, but, like, I know, like, I see it, like, with myself and, like, my friends and, like, our generation, like, it's kind of, like, we kind of feel this pressure, like, everything's, like, on us, like, we need to go and, like, talk to these elders and, like, we need to, like, go and learn as much as we can so, like, we can, like, preserve this, like, for future generations. I've heard it, too, like, within the community, but decisions that you make in life, like, you have to think how it would affect seven generations back and seven generations forward. Greed, fear, and a belief in cultural superiority held by white Americans worked to remove Cherokees from their place. Some figured out how to stay but the Cherokee people lost a lot. After Americans got the land they wanted, they went about dismantling Cherokee culture and the cultures of other indigenous groups through legislation and boarding schools. Americans used the otherness of Cherokees and various tribes, the fact that they lived, looked, and worshipped differently to justify these actions. A lot's been lost, but strong pieces of Cherokee culture remain. More on that after the break. It's challenging to pull up to a place, figure out whether there's a compelling story there, and then go about lining up interviews with people who can tell that story well in a matter of days. I write, edit, and fact check stories for my van in all sorts of places that usually don't have the best internet. It's also pretty challenging to find a quiet place to record. It's challenging, but I love it. And I think original, independent journalism from places that don't often get mainstream attention 
warrants this effort. If you want to support the show, consider donating to us. You can donate on our website, placeswelive.com. But most importantly, keep listening and tell your friends about Places. Thank you so much. Now back to the show. Next door to the Museum of the Cherokee Indian is Kuala Arts and Crafts. It's a co-op where tribal citizens sell traditional Cherokee crafts, from handmade stickball sets to clay pottery to woven baskets. This isn't a kitschy tourist shop. It's more like a museum. The pieces are handmade and unique. As I wander around, I'm drawn in by the baskets. They're all different sizes, from tall cylindrical ones that would make a cool statement piece in a living room to small ones you could use for storing jewelry. They're natural shades, nudes and browns and oranges, and some are patterned. Although there's been cultural loss, as Tyra mentioned, basket making is a tradition that's still around. I really wanna know more about these baskets, so I ask a couple of expert basket makers if they'd be up for talking to me. My name is Patricia Welch, and I'm a member of the Eastern Band of the Cherokees, and I am a white oak basket maker. I got my inspiration from my mother-in-law. She's a very well-known basket weaver and uh, made beautiful baskets. So I would watch her, and actually that's how she, I guess, like paid her bills, bought groceries and things like that because of, you know, the baskets that she sold. That's how she supported her family. And, you know, I thought that was pretty cool. Her designs and how she would build her baskets and everything was like so unique. It was just, you know, oh, I mean, I, beautiful. I just, you know, kept thinking, one of these days I'm going to learn how to do that, you know. She handed me some splints one day and she said, here, try it. My name's Faye Junaluska and I am a Cherokee white oak basket maker. I've been making baskets for 42 years. was 20 years old when I first joined co-op up here. Patricia and Faye are going to explain how to make a basket. The first step is to find a good tree. I just go out into the woods and check the white oak out, find one maybe four to five feet tall, depending, and I'll cut a chunk out of it, like a chip out of it. And I pop that chip out to see how the lines are on that tree. Um, my husband and I then, he would go out and cut the white oak down, and then we sat together and we would separate it and uh, sit and scrape the splints until they began, until they looked like this. Patricia holds up a long, thin strip of wood that curls at the edges. And this is the natural color of a white oak tree after you finish scraping it. It's a white looking. Then you work your whole tree until you get all of your splints done because you can get anywhere from 200 to maybe 500 splints out of a tree. And then once you get it all scraped, then Then your dyeing process starts. Cherokee basket makers extract natural dyes from plants they forage. Each plant is boiled to bring out its color. Okay, we have yellow root, um, which produces yellow. Then you have blood root that produces a red color. 
and walnut produces a brown color and then the butternut produces a black. For the yellow root you go to the riverbank. It grows all along the riverbanks. The blood root, it grows on the dark side of the mountain. Then the uh, walnut, you can use the hull off of the walnut or you can use the, the bark off of the tree or you can even use the leaves off of a walnut tree. A butternut is the same way. So, you carve your splints from the tree, then you boil your splints with your plant of choice for long enough to get the color you want. Then you lay splints out for the bottom of your basket and begin to weave. It's hard to do, I mean, especially when you begin to stand in your baskets up. And that, to me, that was the hardest part is getting them to stand up, you know. So I wrestled with that around for about, about a year or two <laughs> until I finally, finally got it right. There's three different types of baskets. This is called a market basket. It's about 18 inches long and maybe about eight inches high. A lot of people a long time ago would have used it for like potatoes and onions. I mean, you know, when you go to the garden to, you know, get your vegetables and stuff, you could, you know, put all kinds of things inside this basket. And then this is a purse basket. Most, most of the Indian women or the, you know, elder women would carry their baskets, you know, for their personal belongings. And the handles that are used on this basket is called drop handles because they drop to the side. And this is what they would have used to put their fish in. When you go fishing and you catch fish, you know, you put them into the uh, basket here. Um, and it was made tall enough to where the fish wouldn't be able to jump out. And that's why the neck thing is on. And those are about the three main type of baskets that I would do, yeah. So what are you seeing, like, people who buy your baskets and other Cherokee baskets now? Like, do you have a sense of what people mostly use them for today? Well, whenever I uh, make a basket and sell it, I hope they use it. I mean, you know, I'd like for them to use it. But a lot of people, well, depend, it's just depending on the person, you know, because a lot of them use it to decorate with and stuff, you know. But um, I, you know, like to make baskets that people can use, say, like the market basket. I mean, you know, by all means. Instead of bringing plastic home with you, you know, carry the basket with you to the store and put your groceries in a little basket like this, and then that way you don't have to deal with the plastic. I don't like plastic. <laughs> I'm the same way. I, I try not to use plastic at the mm -hmm. grocery store, so I love that. So, and if you could use this, then, you know, that eliminates the having to do with the plastic. My mother's in a permanent gallery in here, so she's uh, built her name up over the years, but she's been gone 18 years. She traveled the uh, baskets up in Smithsonian, up in Washington. Uh, this is my mother here. Oh, okay. Emma, Emma Taylor? Yeah. We walk over to the gallery inside the co-op. Faye points to a series of photos of her mother, Emma Taylor, alongside her baskets. One photo shows Emma using an axe to scrape bark off a tree. Another shows her sitting down, weaving a basket. She's sitting outside next to dyed splints, logs, and an axe. She's wearing a striped colored dress and black thick-rimmed glasses. She would ask coming up if we wanted to make a basket, and I'd always tell her, I don't want to make a basket because that's all I say you do, but didn't realize, or being ignorant, didn't know that's what put food on the table and a little bit of clothes on my back. Is there anyone in your life who you are passing on your skills to? I've got granddaughters, but no interest. <laughs> Never 
want to sit there and make one. I asked all the time. Uh, a month ago, I asked my oldest grandson, I said, you want to sit there and make a basket? Uh, no. <laughs> so maybe one day he might come back and say, Grandma, should we make a basket? Do you have a sense of maybe why they're not interested? Just no interest. I don't know whether it has to do with them going to public schools and not being in touch with the stuff that's going on within the Indian school up here because they do teach crafts up here and they do teach a history up here. So I don't know whether that makes a difference or, or not. But I've talked to them about stuff, they be about history, uh, about the clans and it's just like, oh. <laughs> so maybe one day, I don't know, maybe. maybe. Maybe so, maybe one day, maybe not. After I chat with Faye and Patricia, I continue to peruse Koala Arts. I'm struck by the beauty of these baskets. If I lived in a house, I'd love to buy a big one. But I live in a van, so I settle for a small, rectangular, white oak basket for our fruits and vegetables. It's mostly sand-colored, with a few darker splints woven in. It's expensive, 200 bucks, but rightfully so. So much work and craft goes into these. The basket fits perfectly in the produce nook that Nick carved out under our counter. We were using a cardboard box for produce before, so this is a big upgrade. This is the first souvenir, if you can even call it that, that I've bought on the trip. I'm not much of a shopper, but this is the type of thing I love. A useful piece of art, history, and culture, all in one. It's the type of thing that feels rare in America these days. Okay, I've got my basket. Now I'm going to walk down the street to the tribal council house. I have a meeting with someone I'm very excited to talk to. The chief of the Eastern Band. Hi, Richard Sneed, Principal Chief of the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians. Our government is structured very much like the federal government in that we have three branches of government. We have the executive branch, which consists of a chief and a vice chief, a legislative branch, which consists of 12 council members, and then we have a judicial branch, which also includes a tribal supreme court. Uh, the chief and vice chief run for office on a four-year term, and council members run every two years. Eastern Band is, is one of the most advanced tribes as far as self-governance. And, uh, and exercising tribal sovereignty. We operate our own court system, our own police force, our own jail, our own hospital, our own school system. So in our case, the state has no jurisdiction on tribal land at all. Richard explains that some tribes have granted states jurisdiction on tribal land, but the Eastern Band has moved the U.S. government as far out of their business as they can. You know, it, it's, it's difficult for people to understand that these are nations within a nation. Mm -hmm. And uh, that is expressed in the Commerce Clause of the Constitution, where it says that the Congress has the ability to regulate commerce between the various states, foreign nations, and Indian tribes. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's like the language that, that tribes stand on um, for sovereignty, that we are individual nations within a nation. 
Can you talk a little bit about the um, economic opportunities here and also specifically um, programs that you're really focused on? So, I mean, obviously gaming has been tremendous for us. Uh, 1988, the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act was passed, and that was really uh, the, the federal government affirming the sovereignty of tribes that that because it is tribal land and the tribe the tribes are sovereign that 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 they the federal government created the framework uh, for tribes to participate in gaming 1997 was, was when we first opened the resort property so that's been uh, very advantageous for us the tribe owns two harris casinos in north carolina one here in town and another one 55 miles southwest of here the casino in town is attached to a fancy hotel and spa. The 21-story hotel shoots up into the sky over the surrounding green hills. We've enjoyed essentially a monopolistic run here because there's been no competition in the southeast, but that's changing very rapidly. Competition's coming. The attitude towards uh, gaming is changing rapidly in this country, especially with uh, sports betting. Uh, you got states adopting sports betting all the time. Uh, and you also have states that are looking at commercial gaming because as more and more states begin to enter into the commercial gaming uh, arena, there's like literally billions of dollars leaving the non-gaming states going into the states that, the, the adjoining states, their neighboring states that have gaming. Virginia just adopted gaming. Tennessee just adopted sports betting and they're working toward commercial gaming. Uh, Georgia uh, is working towards commercial gaming. North Carolina is working toward commercial gaming. So. So essentially, I would say probably within the next seven to 10 years, it, it wouldn't be uh, you know, out of the realm of possibility for every state in the Southeast to have gaming. There's nothing else in the world that gives the, the return on investment like, like gaming does. So prior to gaming, tourism was, that was, that was it. I mean, that was, our, that, that was our, our, really our sole source of income. So if you go back and you look at pictures from like the 40s and the 50s, you know, downtown Cherokee, was essentially selling the Hollywood image, right, of, of what an Indian is. So you would see, you know, uh, men up and down the street, you know, standing out in front of craft shops, dressed in essentially Plains Indian regalia with, the, you know, the, the full headdress. And, and the Cherokees, that's, that's not who we were, but, but that's what people expected. For probably 40 years or more, uh, that was the sole revenue stream for Cherokee was tourism. Once gaming started, tourism really just took a back seat because there's there's not really the um, the push to continue to develop locally economic development projects when essentially you have you know the golden goose laying the golden egg every year. Uh, it, it really takes the focus away of of developing tourism. So it's a challenge. Um, you know we've we've had uh, multiple opportunities placed before us to develop resorts here. And it just kind of always falls through. So, and the other part of it too is that, you know, when I tell people all the time, I'm like, look, economic development doesn't mean that we have to build something here. The reality is, is that we don't have um, the buildable land base here uh, to continue to do development. Like I've had people say, well, why can't we be like Gatlinburg? Why can't we be like Pigeon Forge? And I said, do you really want to be like that? I don't. The chief says he'd rather have the tribe build and invest in property in other places so Cherokee doesn't become even more crowded than it already is. So we created Kadua LLC in my first year in office. We seeded a board, uh, gave them seed money to get started, and, and now they're, they're acquiring properties, apartment complexes. They bought a, a modular home company. Uh, 
we purchased property over at exit 407 in Tennessee in Sevierville, like 198 acres. They're developing that. Tourism was really important and it still is, but as long as gaming is, is the main uh, source of, of revenue generation, uh, tourism will always take a back seat to that. Mm -hmm. it, it just can't compete. Mm -hmm. It really can't. It's interesting because I just would have wrapped up gaming with tourism because mm -hmm. I think, I guess I assume that people come from all over to, to, to game, but do you have a sense of who the clientele is? I think the the uh, you know the, the misconception is is that if people come here to game that they're also going to go out into town and, and but that just never happens. People who come to game they come to game and when they're done gaming they leave. That's just the nature of it. I guess I'm curious about the different traditions that are still being practiced here. Probably most notable is uh, our annual fall festival. The most notable traditions that occur during fall festival, and that's just the first week of October, is uh, we have uh, community stickball games, not stickball like in Jersey, but Indian ball. It's where lacrosse was derived from. And here it's, it's violent. I mean, it is a violent game. Uh, it's the game that the tribe used to use when there was disputes between clans, if there were disputes over land, rather than going to war amongst ourselves, they would, they would play a stickball game and, you know, the stories that, that have been handed down from the, through the generations are that you know, people were killed back in the day playing the game. I played, uh, not this last year because we didn't have it, but the year before and the year before that, uh, they, they have an over 40 uh, game and I played in that. Uh, I got my foot broken the second time I played, about three minutes into the game. So that was a, I think that may have ended my stickball career. So one of the things that, I, that, that has always troubled me is uh, it used to be a very strong tradition uh, at the at the fair was our craftsmen and craftswomen uh, displaying their, their, their work. And uh, once we got gaming and the tribe just began to provide everything, uh, you just see less and less people entering like their baskets or their pottery or their paintings or their drawings. So you see that number go, you know, the, the amount of uh, entries goes down each year. What is the tribe providing mainly? Well, we provide a lot. Uh, we think tribally, we think communally, we think uh, in, in terms of when somebody has a need, we're going to rally around that family and we're going to take care of them. Uh, when one of our elders has a need, I mean, if they need a load of firewood, we're taking them a load of firewood. You know, if they need food, we're taking them food. And as, as the tribe's uh, revenue stream increased, those services that we used to just provide for one another as, as community members, uh, then shifted to the tribal government and now it's becomes like an expectation that well yeah the tribe should provide that the tribe uses casino profits to provide services like health care education and housing to its citizens the tribe also pays out biannual dividends from casino profits to each tribal citizen kind of like a universal basic income the dividends have grown over the years the tribe received its biggest payout in 2019, over $7,200 per citizen for gaming profits over a six-month period. Richard, a self-described libertarian, is concerned about this trend toward more and more government assistance. So I, I work very diligently to try to change the mindset and move the needle back the other way. Because every time the needle moves further toward entitlement, 
we move away from what it means to be a tribe. We move away from who we really are as a people. You know, what troubles me, and that's not just our tribe, that's, that's communities in general, you know. Mm-hmm. We used to be interdependent uh, in our communities, and, and now it's like every time something happens, everybody's looking to the federal government to, to fix it. I think that's something, as an American and, and as a Cherokee, I would love to see less involvement by the government and more interdependence among human beings. As Richard's telling me this, I'm kind of thinking that the Cherokee system of subsidizing essential services and paying out dividends feels a lot more like interdependence than what we have in the States. But to Richard, tribal economic programs don't equate to social interdependence. He's concerned the programs are instilling a mindset that the tribe should provide everything. And he says he sees a lack of tenacity among the younger generations at least to some extent, as a result. There's a tenacity in our people and, and, and a perseverance in our people and a fire in our people that um, it's, it's not dead, it's dormant. And I think it's dormant because of the age in which we live. Uh, and, and whether people realize it or not, we live in an age of ease. Go back a couple generations, you know, what my grandparents had to do just to exist. Uh, man, we've got it so easy by comparison. And I think that uh, it, it's not good, you know. Uh, the struggle's necessary for all humans. And I don't mean that in, in the sense of having to suffer injustice or suffer unnecessarily, but I, I believe human beings, by their very nature, need the struggle. We need to have purpose. We need to have a reason to get out of bed every day, right? We need to have a reason to continue to, to persevere. Richard says he's conflicted about the casino payouts. He values all the good that's come from more money in the community. Research suggests that the casino money has had positive impacts for families and children. The casino money has helped families rise out of poverty, and Eastern Band family incomes rising above the poverty line has correlated with decreased emotional and behavioral problems for kids, as well as fewer issues with drug and alcohol addiction. Life is way better, Richard says. But the entitlement and complacency he's seeing bothers him. I agree with the chief that humans need a purpose and a reason to persevere. And I think we can learn a lot about perseverance from the Eastern Band. After being forcibly removed from this land, losing their tribal identity, and being forced to assimilate into American culture, they're still here today with their own government, traditions, and a source of income that's pretty enviable. Before leaving town, I drive to Kadua Mound. It's about 10 minutes southwest of Cherokee. As Tyra mentioned, the Cherokees were mound builders. They'd build dirt mounds for ceremonies and as platforms for their council houses. Kadua Mound is the location of the original Cherokee settlement, the mother town, as they call it. I look out beyond the mound. It's in a large green field, and you can see the smoky mountains in the distance. Fog hangs over evergreen trees. Archaeologists date this site back to about 10,000 years, 
That means it's at least 24 times as old as the oldest American colony. I walk through mud toward the mound. It used to shoot 15 to 20 feet up into the air. It's only five feet tall now, a bump on an otherwise flat field. But it's still here, and it belongs to the Eastern Band. This episode was written, edited, and produced by me, Mia Sullivan. Nick Beishu is our associate producer. Music for this episode is by Matthew Tunai of the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians. Our theme is by Brent Curridan, and our show art is by Christine Hostetler and Michelle Anderson. Additional music was provided by Blue Dot Sessions. A special thanks to Tyra Maney, Patricia Welsh, Faye Junaleska, Richard Sneed, Sam Pike, Eleanor Love Pike, Sean O'Connor, Christina Sullivan, and Blair Sullivan. The good thing is, it's a lot easier to shovel sand than it is mud. Yeah, we need those max tracks. Definitely. I mean, they warned us. Next time on Places, we go back inside the van and see what it's like living in an 80-square-foot home in the forest with a fiancé and a really large dog. I'm Mia Sullivan. Thanks for listening. See you next time.